Well, good morning. It is great to see you all here this morning. I know some are still getting settled in their seats. I pray and that God gave you a great week. It's good to see some back. Several have been traveling through the month of July. Um, we, we understand. A lot of people travel through the month of July. Um, and uh, it's, it's, for me, it's sad sometimes because I miss you for a couple weeks, but then it's so good to see you back. So thank God that you came back and are ready to receive the word. If you are visiting with us this morning, thank you for joining us. I know Griff said something, but we are thrilled to see you here. Uh, it is not by mistake that God brought you to hear the word this morning. We are going through some deep stuff through the book of Romans. Last week, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 this week, the beginning of chapter 3. But for whatever reason, God wanted you here this morning and you obeyed His call to come to worship. So it is great to see you here. If you're listening online, we are thrilled that you've joined us that way. If you're listening via radio, you've tuned in, uh, it's great to interact with you through the radio waves. Please take your Bibles, if you've not done so, by my hint. (laughs) And please go to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3, we've been in this here for three months, and now we are all the way deep into the book. Well, kind of. (laughs) Romans chapter 3. So I hope your heart is ready to engage with these principles in Romans chapter 3. While you're turning, just a couple quick words to reiterate some of uh, the wonderful announcements that our friend Griff has shared with us in such a lighthearted but very appropriate way, uh, just to reiterate some of these. Some of you have expressed interest in baptism. I know there's several in the body, and uh, sometimes quarterly, but uh, sometimes biannually, we'll do a baptism service. That is coming up. If you are interested in being baptized and would like to hear more of that, next week there will be a meeting right after the morning service. Um, To keep this going, We are going to do it right after uh, the morning service in room 101, and Pastor Matt will be leading this meeting. So if you are interested in being baptized, I would encourage you, even if you want more information about this, come next week. Why are we doing this next week? Because in three weeks we'll have a baptismal service. And here's the fun of it. Every year we try to go somewhere and do an outdoor service. Well, we're going to plan on doing that this year. I believe the date is August 8th. This is our annual outdoor service. We're going to go back up to Lassen Pines Christian Camp. Uh, we're going to have an outdoor service in that prayer circle. Uh, what are they called? Reflection circle. Uh, then we're going to follow that with some baptisms. And then we'll follow that. Any good meeting of brothers and sisters in Christ has to include food. You know it. So we'll work to have food. This is like Jim's go-to and Aaron and... They go to this. So we're going to have some good food that day, but please join us August 8th. There will not be services here. We will be up at Lassen Pines Christian Camp. Um, then this. Would you pray for something? Griff's already mentioned this. Jim's mentioned this in the past. Pray diligently as we prepare for this fall. Through the summer, we sort of take a break from our, our formal gatherings on, during the week, our Wednesday night gatherings, our family discipleship gatherings. We're going to launch those in mid-September And we pray that God would give us grace as we organize those. Would you continue to pray for the elders here and those in leadership? Would you pray that we have wisdom, just as as Griffith said, with, with with the children, teaching these children the ways of the Lord? We need volunteers. Um, And it's not a hard thing. It's just something that takes, what it does is takes passion to teach these kids the way of Jesus. 
Um, so would you pray as we put those, those plans together for this fall? Also, through the fall into the winter, our goal is to have, and I'm stoked about this, um, monthly church activities. Hey, we need fellowship. We get stuff here when we come on Sunday morning. Some of you hang out longer than others, but a lot of us will go our ways right after the last song and amen. However, we need times together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you can't make it on Wednesday nights because of your schedule, and you're crying out for some fellowship. So we are planning through the month of September and October and November and December to do a monthly activity where we can all get together, and they're going to look different ways. So would you pray as we plan those, and we'll give more word as that comes out. There's some exciting, uh, exciting events that will be happening. All right. Here we are. Back in Romans 3, I will say this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for how well you listened last week. Uh, as we just, I mean, we put the hand to the plow when we plowed through the rest of chapter 2. I got home Sunday afternoon and I was just like, wow. That was exhausting and I praise God for, your, for the grace He gave you to listen. Uh, we went through some deep stuff and you held on. Last week was arguably... One of the most difficult texts in all the book of Romans. And we went from chapter 2.12 all the way to chapter 2.29. So hopefully you glean from the word. Now take comfort because arguably the most confusing text in all of Romans is today. <laughs> so I hope you're ready. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Um, we're going to look at this. I've tried to detail it on the back of your handout to try to give you some idea of Paul's scope and sequence of this passage. Um, but before we even do that, I better figure out how to turn on this presentation. <laughs> Let's give this a shot. All right. There we go. I, I want to start by this. Um, This has been quite a year. I mean, think about this last year and a half. I mean, who would have ever thought March 2020, heading into the rest of that year with uh, what was considered to be by some or many a global pandemic, the elections. I mean, just think about these flashes, these news flashes from the last year. I mean, we're talking about upheaval in cities. We're talking about law enforcement officers just outright killed in their cars. We're talking about potentially a misabuse of justice in certain areas. We're talking about people going crazy. All of this upheaval happening. I mean, this week I was thinking about this. The sickness and the death of the last year. The natural disasters of the last year the political manipulation potentially, the upheaval of this last year, the moral disintegration of this last year. Think about what happened this last year. And the reason I put this, question, or this picture up here is because if we're really, really honest over this last year, there are times in our lives where we sit back and as we interact as followers of Jesus Christ, as worshipers of God, as those who hold to the Scriptures, we kind of have to start asking some questions. I mean, we're real. Like, we want to be real just like the psalmist was. I know some believers will say, never question God. Well, I say, well, you've got to go to Psalms. There's a lot of questions to God. 
Some of these questions that we're tempted to ask is, God, where, where are you? If you're real with some of the questions that have been asked in your own mind this year, more than likely you've asked, God, where are you in all of this? Maybe you've asked this question, God, are you really as good as you say you are? This is your creation, right? God, these songs we sang about your faithfulness all day today, <laughs> every song about God's faithfulness, are you really that faithful? I mean, so from the onset of this sermon this morning, I want us to realize that these are not just questions that were posed in the first century. These are things that we are even tempted to go through in our own minds here and now, the 21st year of the 21st century. God, where are you? God, are you really good? And God, are you really faithful? And the reason I ask those questions is because these are the same questions that are being asked in Romans chapter 3, 1 through 8 in different forms. I mean, if you look at Romans 3, 1 through 8, it is full of questions. Question after question after question after question. What's happening in this text? Romans chapter 3, verse 8. Paul, having just confronted the self-righteous worshipers, these are those who worship God based on a God they can understand. They do all these outward forms of worship, but they haven't been changed in their heart by the Holy Spirit of God. They have not truly come to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance. That's the person Paul is describing here in Romans chapters one, uh, chapter 3, the end, all the way through chapter 2 and into 3. And Paul is writing this to believers. He's explaining these unbelievers to believers. Why? He's clarifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, very quickly, we need to remind ourselves through these questions of the main theme of Romans 1 through 3. What is the key idea of Romans 1 through 3? You can see it on the handout. You can see it in this brief outline that we're just developing as we go through this. It is this. God's righteousness is revealed through condemnation. Every single human needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because every single human being deserves God's righteous condemnation. We deserve it. No ifs, ands, or buts. We deserve this condemnation. And so Paul so beautifully articulates this in Romans 1, 2, and 3. To whom does he articulate it? Well, in chapter 1, he's talking to essentially the Gentiles. These are those who are steeped in this godless, truth-suppressing, sin-saturated paganism who have really ignored God's truth that he's expressed all around them. And Paul so brilliantly goes through like a lawyer with arguments and proves that all of these truth suppressors stand guilty before God. And then, as the self-righteous ones in the mix, in the story, are kind of looking at these truth suppressors and saying, yeah, you're really bad, we open up into chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find Paul saying it's not just these pagan truth suppressors that are under God's condemnation, it is also these self-righteous worshipers. 
these worshipers that want God the way they create Him. They see this God and they want Him to be this way. They want this God to fit in this box of their understanding. And they find special safety in somehow their ethnicity or their forms of worship or their outward conformity. Somehow they think they're exempt from God's holy condemnation. And Paul, again, like a lawyer, goes through reason after reason in chapter 2 heading into chapter 3. We've seen so far four reasons proving this. All self-righteous worshipers deserve the condemnation of a righteous God. Not one of them is exempt. It doesn't matter how many days you went to church when you were, uh, you know, ages three to five. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Sunday school class you went to or taught. It doesn't matter how many times you entered the baptismal waters. It doesn't matter how many people you actually shared the sinner's prayer with. It is a personal transformation of the heart through the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here is there's reasons for why these self-righteous people will be condemned. Reason one, and we looked at this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here's the reason. God's kindness will not ignore hypocrisy. So we love to talk about God's kindness. And this is what we're going to actually talk more of today. We like to talk and dwell on God's kindness. And somehow the self-righteous person says, yes, because God's kind, He's going to kind of turn a blind eye at my sin. Paul says, absolutely not. Here's reason number two. God's judgment is always impartial. His judgment is not based on your upbringing, your skin color, your ethnicity, your geographical background. It is based on one thing, and that is your sin before a holy God. Reason three, God's expectations reach deeper than the outward. This is what we looked at last week in this massive text, 2, 12 through 29. And I hope you caught the key idea last week that God's expectations reach beyond just putting everything together on the outside. All of these outward forms of conformity, which I would add, as we talked of last week, is so prevalent in what's known as cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, if I could just say that, cultural Christianity is prevalent in the city of Redding, California. I cross all my church I's, dot all my church, or other way around, dot all my I's, cross all my T's theologically, got everything right, looked just right, but my heart has not been transformed by God. I have not lived in this faith that I claim. And now today we move into chapter 3 and we find another reason for the condemnation of these self-righteous worshipers and here it is. God's faithfulness includes more than just blessings. All right, we ready to wrap our minds around this one. God's faithfulness includes more than just the positive vibes from God. The positive blessings from God. All of the good things He can do for me. 
Romans 3, 1 through 8, Paul is addressing a group of people who were seriously doubting the faithfulness of God. So, after walking through, I mean, you can understand this, reading through chapters 1 and especially chapter 2, you get to the end of chapter 2 and you're like, wow, this was aimed right at these self-righteous Jews, which was a big deal in this church, this mix of Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And so what's going on in the process of thinking for the Jews is, okay, how could this God be righteous if this God is not faithful? He's not faithful to keep us from sin. He's not faithful to keep us from being condemned. These self-righteous Jewish worshipers were saying something like this. Hey, Paul, if this is the God you are teaching about, a God of wrath and justice and condemnation, all of those ugly things, Paul... How in the world could he be good, especially to us? Remember, Paul, you are one of us. We're Jews. Hey, Paul, if we really are God's chosen people and God really made covenants with us, remember, Paul, through Abraham and Moses because you brought both of them up last chapter, how in the world can this God be faithful and still eternally condemn us because we have been born of the seed of Abraham, Paul? Is this God really faithful? Hey, Paul, you're a smart dude. <laughs> and you, your theology is, is mostly pretty rock solid, but this doesn't make sense to us, Paul. This is definitely not the faithful God that we've heard about since we were little critters. Hey, Paul, is a God who brings condemnation on his people truly good? Truly faithful? Okay, so right now, maybe there's this uneasiness about where we're sitting right now. A little squirming in our seats, right? Because these questions asked by the Jews in the first century anticipated by Paul and these ob, uh, objections. How many of us have heard these same questions this year? What am I talking about? How many times have you heard, if God is a good God, Christian, could He really condemn good people? Whew. Let's dig into this. I want us to dig right into this passage. I want us to see Paul's response as he has this amazing poetry, as it were. What he does in this text, I'm going to tell you, these commentators, I, I read a number of commentators on this. After I interact with the Scriptures, get an overview of it, I go to a number of commentaries. I do a lot of reading on these texts. And honestly, they're all over the map in some of the, the way they describe this passage. But I love to see, especially a couple commentators, how they so diligently work through and see the structure of what Paul is saying here. And it's beautiful. It is almost like poetry. And what, what am I talking about? Well, look in the back of your handout. Paul, in his argument, this reason for, he so beautifully structures it with objection and answer. Question and and answer. Question and answer. But it isn't just one question. Every single one of the objections is two questions. Two questions, two answers. Two questions, two answers. Two questions, two answers. And then the very last one is two questions, and it's almost like Paul's like, I'm done answering the Holy Spirit. Uh, one answer. 
done. And here's the final answer of the whole discussion. Their condemnation is fair. So let's read through this text simply this morning and let's see how Paul walks through this so brilliantly, starting with verse 1, the first objections. First two questions, here it is. Hey, Paul. Well, that's not in there, but it's in our minds. Then what advantage has the Jew? So what advantage has God's chosen people? What is the value of circumcision or being Abraham's people? Here's Paul's response. Much in every way. Okay, time out. So we just read through chapter 2, and now you're reading this, and you're like, what? But it's true. Why? Because look at the rest of his response. This is so good. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What? This is so good. Why? Because the Jews received God's words, His sayings. We'll look at that more in just a minute. Now, two more objections. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful, Paul? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? What is Paul's response? Sorry, I'll go back. By no means. Okay, you're going to see that one response ten times through the book of Romans. It is one of the, most, one of the strongest imperatives that you'll find here, or explanations, I should say, of don't ever, 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 ever say that. Some of your translations will say, God forbid. He says it twice in these verses. All right. By no means, and then if you find the theme, I believe, of this entire eight verses, we find it here in this next phrase of verse 4. Highlight it, underline it, circle it, whatever you need to, because here it is. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, two more objections. Okay, Paul, but if our, um, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way, or in other words, I'm, I'm giving you an unregenerate perspective here. And then the response again, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? In other words, you would have to erase a part of God's very nature to say that. And that's where we're headed with this. You would have to take God in the fullness of His nature, all of His attributes come together in the one being, our God. And you would have to take in some way and extract some of who God is to say that. And what would you have to extract from your God? You would have to extract the fact that He is holy and He is just and He is righteous and His wrath is fair. And then verse 7, we find 7 and 8, we find two more objections. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, okay, now they're getting real self-righteous. Okay, somehow through my lie God is going to be seen as being more glorified. 
uh, the rest of that phrase, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? (laughs) And then Paul inserts this, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, so Paul's being blamed to teach that bad theology, And then we come to the last response of Paul, and here is the dynamic response. Their condemnation is just. That's just ridiculous. You're trying too hard, way too hard to to disprove God here. Flat out acknowledge this. Because of sin, you deserve God's wrath. And that's Paul's response. All right. So to wrap our minds around this again, and then we'll kind of go through some of these points to this text. What is this? This is God's faithfulness includes more than his blessings. We have to acknowledge that. Again, Paul has just anticipated the objections of self-righteous worshipers whose theology is seriously flawed here. These self-righteous worshipers were doubting the God that Paul was explaining because he did not. This God did not fit in the framework of their understanding. These self-righteous worshipers were proving that they were not worshiping a God for who he was. They were worshiping a God for who they wanted him to be. Paul's response ought to be very familiar to us in this study because we've said this every single week almost. Here's the statement. God is God and I am not. The other statement. God is not who you want him to be. God is who he said he is. And that is the response of the Apostle Paul in this very tough text. All right, so let's just work through, and what we'll do is summarize these objections. So we'll take all these eight questions and summarize them down into one statement, and I think the statement would have to go something like this. God must, this is what they're saying, this is their objections. The the ones arguing against Paul, they're saying this. God must not be a righteous God because God is not really a faithful God. Can God really be fair if He judges His chosen people to whom He promised to be faithful? I will be faithful to you, God says through the Abrahamic covenant. Now, is this God really righteous? This argument you can see very clearly in verse 5. I put put half of the verse up there, but the verse goes like this again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So what are they doing? They are doubting the righteousness of God that Paul is so clearly presenting here. God must not be a righteous God because God is not really a faithful God is what they're saying. If we jump back to verse 3, we see this question about the faithfulness of God. What does verse 3 say? What if some were unfaithful? Some of these chosen ones were unfaithful. Does their faithlessness make void or nullify the faithfulness of God? So because they weren't faithful, does that mean that God wasn't faithful to keep them faithful? You understand the argument? 
as weird as it is, that was the argument. But even as weird as it is, it kind of makes sense to us a little bit in our minds. What were these objection, objectors saying? If we just bring it down to summarized form, they're saying this, Hey, Paul, this God you are teaching us about, he's not really a righteous God. You know why? Because if what you're saying is true, Paul, about the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God, you need to realize something, Paul. He stopped being faithful to his people a long time ago. Why? Because he didn't keep his people from disobeying his law, and he condemns his people after they sin, or will condemn their, his people after they sin. Whew. This is disheartening, disturbing. Why? Because there's a massive problem here. What is the flaw? If you've not identified the flaw yet, here it is. These self-righteous worshipers wanted to receive the good stuff from God, but didn't want to acknowledge the bad stuff from God. All right? In very simple terms, that's what's happening here. They were equating God's faithfulness with God's positive blessings only and were failing to acknowledge that God's faithfulness also included, catch this, God's faithfulness also included His righteous condemnation for sin. They wanted God's mercy. Okay, let's make this plain here. They wanted God's mercy and grace and love and kindness. Well, we kind of wanted to stick His holiness and His righteousness and His justice over here and no one ever mention it. Do you see the arguments here? By the way, do we see that in our current theological context? We'll talk more of this in just a minute, but how many churches in America right now, sermons are being preached? Pastors are getting passionate <laughs> Verses are being read about how amazing God's love and kindness and grace and care is. And my friends, it's true. God is faithful. God is good. God is merciful and kind. But you can't ignore the wrath of God. You cannot ignore the holiness of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God. Why? Because you will not truly see the love of God shine until you understand that the wrath of God is real. And that's what Paul is going through here. What is Paul's key response? Let's kind of summarize his key response. So there's all of these verses and response. Let's kind of try to bring them down to a simple response. It would have to be something like this. Okay, Self-righteous worshipers here, you need to realize that God's faithfulness does include blessings. Okay, it does. He doesn't deny it. Paul doesn't deny the fact that God's faithfulness truly does involve blessings. Positive stuff. And how does he say this? Well, look in verse 2. I'll go ahead and read verse 1 leading into verse 2. Then what advantage has the Jews? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the words of God. Hey, self-righteous worshipers, don't ignore the fact that God has been faithful to bless you already. How? 
God showed His faithfulness to Israel by giving them His words. Okay, the entire Old Testament of Scripture was given out of faithfulness of a good God who wanted to express Himself to His people. And what's Paul's argument? Don't forget, God has been faithful to you. How? He gave you the Word. These are His words. By the way, this is a bit of a setup. If you haven't identified this already, it's a bit of a setup from Paul. Why? Because he's saying God blessed you by giving you his word. Okay, so what does his word say? God is not who you want him to be. God is who he said he is. That's what Paul is saying here. In essence, the Jews had, if you look at it this way, why is there a blessing for these Jews? It's because of this. They had a chronological jump start in understanding God's redemptive plan. (laughs) They had a jump start in understanding where God was headed with all of this. Through Moses, through the prophets, they saw this unfold. All right, so Paul's main point here is one of the first part of the equation is this. God's faithfulness does not or does include blessings. But here's the rest of what Paul is saying. But God's faithfulness must also include judgment. In other words, you cannot choose the aspects of God's nature that you like but ignore other less appealing aspects of God's nature. Aspects of God's nature that are necessary for His redemptive plan. Particularly His justice. God's faithfulness means he must be faithful to his justice, to his own holiness, to his very nature. God's blessings of ethnic Israel never disqualified his expectations for them to personally obey. Catch that. Even through the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and we'll see in just a minute, the Davidic Covenant, even through all of these covenants, there was not an exemption to obey God and to stay away from sin. And God would condemn personal sin. Why? Because that is who God is. And that is what God does. How does Paul express this? Well, I have part of it up here. Let me read verse 3, setting up into verse 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness? Sorry. Does their faithlessness? We'll get it out. I told you this is a confusing passage. (laughs) Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says in verse 4, by no means, and then this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, God will forever be true to his entire nature. Even, catch this, even if every single one of his prized creations, we're talking about those created in the image of God in Genesis chapter 1, those called to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and have dominion, those people, even if every single one of them pointed a finger at God and said, God, you're not true, who's going to win every single time? God. Let God be true and everyone a liar. 
Why is this the case? Well, I don't want to make this too simplistic, but I kind of do. Here's why. Because God is God and I am not. Okay, there's more to this though, and I love this, because Paul doesn't leave the the answer here. He has to go on to the rest of this verse. Okay, let God be true and everyone... though everyone were a liar, as it is written. So when you find as it is written, like almost 100% of the time, it's taking us back to the Old Testament, okay? So then he quotes from the Old Testament, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So in this discussion on God's faithfulness, not just to his positive blessings, we find this quote from the Old Testament, and guess where this is found? It is found in Psalm 51. What is significant in Psalm 51? If you have studied through the Psalms, you realize that Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance from King David. After David has sinned with Bathsheba, had Uriah killed had broken multiple of the Ten Commandments? We find a response in Psalm 51.4, and this is what Paul is quoting. And if I could read all of Psalm 51.4, it goes like this. David, King David says this. Okay, we're talking about the promised king of Israel. From his line, the Messiah would come. Okay, so we've already talked about Abraham. We've already talked about Moses. Now they're bringing in the other. I mean, most popular guy in the Old Testament, David. And what does David say? Against you, you only have I sinned and done, the, done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Catch this. We, we've got to catch this. Because it's part of the argument here. God is completely faithful, not through just blessing, but through his judgments. And this is exactly what King David is acknowledging. To these self-righteous Jews, Paul had already referenced the law of Moses and the circumcision of Abraham. And now he is pointing out that even King David of the Old Testament, the recipient of the Davidic covenant, he was not exempt from God's judgment. So if King David was not exempt from God's judgment, you certainly won't be exempt from God's judgment. That's what Paul's argument is here. He has a couple more responses that we'll quickly work through here. He says this, verse 6, For then how could God judge the world? Okay, after all of your objections, think about this. How could God judge the world then? Paul is saying to these self-righteous worshipers, don't you realize that your arguments impugn God's very nature, particularly His divine justice? as seen from the very beginnings of your Bible. Okay, what are we talking about? Let's just acknowledge this. Genesis 1, 2, 3. What happened in the beginning of our Bible when Adam and Eve disobeyed God? What did he do? Kicked him out of the garden. That is the justice of Almighty God. But I love this because in God's justice, we find his mercy and wrath come together in his faithfulness. What are you talking about? God was faithful to put those Angels at the 
at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Why? So that Adam and Eve would not be completely destroyed. That is the faithfulness of God seen in his mercy and justice. That is the theology of the word of God. And we're going to see that come to completion in just a minute in somewhere very special. It's called the cross of Calvary. But before we get there, one more objection. He says this, their condemnation is just. You want fair? God's justice is fair. It is deserved. It will be applied to the self-righteous worshipers whether they agree with it or not. My friends here today, Crosspoint Community Church, the story of the Bible is not one that minimizes God's holiness and righteousness and justice. But the story of the Bible is one that promotes God's holiness and righteousness and justice and directs it straight, straight to what? The gracious and loving and merciful cross of Jesus. That's where it's headed. The Bible doesn't take God's holiness and justice and wrath and kind of put it back there in the back shelf. No, it highlights it. Why? Because it's leading us somewhere. It's leading us to Jesus. And it's leading us to the sacrifice that He gave for us on the cross when He took all of our sins on Himself on the tree to make us righteous. That's where all of this is leading. You're saying, okay, prove it in the book of Romans. Well, good, because I want to jump ahead. Romans chapter 5. I love this. Just real quickly, in our minds, we need to jump to Romans 5. We'll see this in a couple weeks. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Catch that. This God of wrath, this God of holiness and righteousness, you don't ignore that because through Jesus, we now have peace with this God. All right, jump into chapter 8, verse 1. What does chapter 8, verse 1 very clearly articulate to us? Here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, where is all of this leading? To Jesus. This is the point of this whole study all the way through Romans 1, 2, and 3. What is Paul saying over and over and over again? You need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and you need Jesus. We all need Jesus. As you get into chapter 3, he's saying all of these ones who minimize God's justice and His wrath, you cannot do it. You cannot, cannot pick and choose what attributes of God you want to embrace. You cannot tear the nature of God apart and say, we like this part of God's nature, but we don't like this part of God's nature. No, you trust that God is God and I am not. You trust that God is who He says He is, not who I want Him to be. And then you will see as this beautifully, beautifully leads us to the understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The cross, I love this. I've been so meditating on this this week. What's the beauty of the cross? It's where God's wrath and mercy meet. My friends, if that can't get you excited, then your exciter's broken. <laughs> Because God's wrath expressed on your account. 
God's love and grace and mercy, they come together as the blood of Jesus Christ flows from the cross. One of my favorite hymn writers is a guy by the name of Isaac Watts, meditating on this all, all through the last part of this week. This 18th century hymn writer says this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the cross is the place where God's holy wrath and rich mercy meet. Paul's final response, their condemnation is just, reminds us that every single human being deserves God's righteous condemnation and every single person needs the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends here today, how appropriate is this for the world we live in right now? Think about this. Just stop. I mean, I was just overwhelmed this week thinking on this. Obviously, the unregenerate truth suppressors, they don't want to hear about the righteous wrath of God. <laughs> you're not going to make a lot of friends by going out and telling people they're condemned, right? Just in your face, you're going to hell, Right? Uh, there's going to be a bit of grace in proclamation, but still truth in proclamation. But what about the religious people? Think about this. Those who feel really good on their worship high, but only feel comfortable worshiping a God who can fit in the box they have created for Him. Those who want to hear about the faithfulness of God, but clench their jaws and purse their lips at the mention of his divine wrath. We're certainly talking about modern cults, but what about even contemporary Christianity that claims to be evangelical? Churchy Jesus people who don't want to hear about the wrath of God because it's just ugly, pastor. Makes me feel so dirty and so discouraged. Friends, we are in a culture obsessed with worshiping a God that has been whittled down to our liking and our understanding. Just like Paul is confronting in this passage. A God who can be faithful to bless me, but I don't like the God who will be faithful to condemn me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to focus all of my attention on the God that will be faithful to bless me. We're a culture full of churches with pastors who will, will refuse to talk about the accountability of a sinful people before a holy God. Let us remind ourselves over and over and over and over again through this study that God is God and we are not. Let us remind ourselves over and over, God, uh, and over again that God is who He says He is, not who we think He should be. Without the wrath of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot truly have the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. What has he said? He does believe in the wrath of God, because you find that in the next verses. The wrath of God. The righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it highlights the wrath of God, but then chases us and runs us to the mercy of God expressed on the cross of Jesus Christ. So what? So what? We've already gone over a little time. But we still need to interact with this. A question to think about as we go our way this. Do I trust that God is who he says he is and not simply who I want him to be? My unbelieving friends here today, again, it is no mistake that you're here. Even the ones listening on online or on the radio this morning, coming from a heart of love, please receive this truth from God's word. And here's the truth from God's word. I want to be very clear on this, that you were not born into this world as a good person. Sure, you were born into this world in the image of God, but that image was marred by Adam, the sin of Adam. And you come from Adam, my friend, and I come from Adam. And if you doubt if you're a sinner because of Adam, then you cannot doubt that you're a sinner because you sin. And if you doubt any of that, we'll take a field trip to the two-year-old class in five minutes. You are not born into this world as a good person, and because of your sin, you stand. Please understand this. You stand condemned before a holy God. A God who will always be faithful to His holy justice and will contemn unbelievers to eternal separation from him in a place the Bible calls hell. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. My friend here today, Jesus went to the cross so that you don't have to go to the cross. He was your substitute. What is your responsibility now with this information? The Bible says to admit that you're a, belie- uh, a sinner. To be saved, you must admit that you're in need of a Savior because you sin. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior and call on Jesus to be your master and Savior today. Today, call on Jesus to save you. My unbelieving friend, would July 18th, 2021 be the day when you come to Jesus in saving faith? This very day. My believing friends here today, as I wrap this up, are you committed to worshiping the God of the Bible? Not just the God that you want to create in your own mind. Not just the God that fits so nicely in your box of understanding, but the God of the sufficient Word of God. Let us pour out all of our pride, as Isaac Watts says in this hymn, and remember that the only way that this God makes sense is as we hold with all we have to all the truths of the glorious gospel even the ones we don't particularly like.
in this 18th century hymn. I'll finish reading this hymn as we close out our service today. Isaac Watts so articulately explains, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet where thorns, thorns compose so rich a crown? Oh, and he closes out like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so that's our prayer today, Father. As we meditate on who you are, You are not a God that we want to create in our own minds as we even started the service off in Isaiah chapter 40. You are a God who you say you are. And I pray, God, that we would remember that your faithfulness certainly means blessing, but it also interacts with your wrath. And I pray, Father, that we would be reminded today And we would go home today realizing that your faithfulness is seen most clearly to us through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not come to you in faith, that today would be that day. My friends here today, as we close out this service, I would encourage you, I'm not going to belabor this this morning, Don't ignore what God is doing in your heart right now. Some of you in this room need to respond in faith to this this Savior. Don't ignore this. Some of you may need to come pray with someone today, this very day. We're going to sing a song in a minute. And through this song, there'll be some chaplains that come to the front that would love to talk with you, pray more with you, guide you in your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's others of you who need to go home and wrestle with this for some time. This is not some quick, trite prayer of salvation. This is a decision to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Would you come to Jesus this very day in faith and repentance? For those who, uh, of us who have come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, would you pray that God would give you the grace to see Him clearly through the Scriptures and to trust Him faithfully. God is not the God that I just want to create. God is the God that He says He is. My friends, we will be reminded of this truth all the way through the rest of the book of Romans. So God, we come to you here today. We thank you for this text of scriptures. Arguably one of the most tough passages in all of Romans to understand. But God, I pray that you would clearly drive us to the fact that you are a faithful God 
You're faithful to do what you said you would do and faithful to be who you said you would be. Let us hold to that with all we have. I thank you for every single person here today. And I pray that you would continue to grow us through this week by your grace. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for your diligent attention today as we jumped around this passage quite a bit. Thank you for doing your best to understand. And I would encourage you, take these things home. Study them through this week. Meditate on these truths that we talked of today. Don't let this be something that you just interact with on Sunday morning. Take it home and study all week through this stuff. Come back next week as we jump right into Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and on. You're going to enjoy next week again, just like you did this week, because we're going to close out this thought on the fact that God's justice is seen, but then it's going to lead us more to His faithfulness through the cross. So come back next week. Some of you came back, came this morning ready to share of your resources. We don't pass any offering plates or anything like that anymore. We want to encourage you, if God has laid that on your heart, there are boxes on, in the back as you leave. You can also um, share of your resources online.